The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World. Episode 44, The First War of Scottish Independence. Earlier in the volume we told the story of the Picts who were a collection of peoples with similar cultures that were predominantly in the lands of modern Scotland during the first millennium. History forgets the Picts during the 9th century as their story stops with no evidence of their existence afterwards. A king of the Gaelic kingdom of Dauriada called Kenneth MacAlpin somehow became the king of a previously unknown kingdom called Alapa. The inhabitants of Dauriada were known in the Latin world as Scotti, and it seems clear that there must have been a unification of the two cultures, the Scotti and the Picti, that led to the kingdom of Alapa, which was the origin of the country of Scotland very much named after the Scotty people who had actually migrated to Scotland from the island of Ireland. Even with the merging of the two cultures, the new kingdom was surrounded by potential enemies. Britons were the Celtic language-speaking peoples of Strathclyde to the southwest. Angles were the Germanic migrants to the island of Great Britain in the lands of Lothian to the southeast. Vikings would also be an enemy from the sea that Kenneth MacAlpin and his successors would have to invest a lot of energy into defending their territory against. Vikings would land in Ireland and also become a menace to the new Scottish kingdom. While the origins of a Scottish kingdom was emerging on the north of the island, so was an English kingdom emerging in the south. The highly ambitious English king Ethelstan invaded Alapa in the 10th century and forced the Scottish king to sue for peace. But just a short time afterwards, a coalition of Scots, Britons and Danes clubbed together to limit Ethelstan's ambitions. The coalition lost the battle, but Ethelstan was not able to take advantage and conquer the Scots in the aftermath. The Scottish kingdom was still restricted to the Grampian Mountains alongside the northern fringes of the central lowlands and the southern fringes of the northwest highlands by the turn of the 11th century. The English were certainly now direct neighbours to the Scottish, so the border raids and invasions were commonplace as the balance of power tilted from one side to the other. By the conclusion of the 11th century, the Scottish Kingdom had secured the far north of Great Britain, taking control of the areas of Sutherland and Caithness, while to the south they had control of the former lands of Strathclyde and the area of Lothian. The rulers in England were now the Normans, 
And so elements of English administrative and ecclesiastic practices filtered into the Scottish system as well as feudal law. We can see an upturn in castle construction in Scotland from this period also. During the 12th century, the lowlands were in danger of conquest by the English, but the Scottish managed to maintain their position, keeping the lowlands together with the highlands. In fact, as the century moved on and the English became embroiled in civil war called the Anarchy, Scotland attempted to move into areas of Northumbria and Cumberland in order to push the border further south into English territory. However, when William the Lion became the King of Scotland, he would join a rebellion against the English, subsequently getting himself captured and having to undergo the embarrassment of signing the Treaty of Falaise while in captivity thanks to the English King, Henry II. This effectively put Scotland in a position of inferiority to England, with English soldiers occupying many Scottish castles. The treaty stayed true until Richard the Lionheart became the King of England and he wanted to raise money for his crusading desires. When Richard's brother John succeeded him as the new King of England, the English barons rebelled and attempted to have John dethroned. King Alexander II of Scotland saw this preoccupation as an opportunity to assert Scottish authority on the lowlands and the borderlands between the two kingdoms although he would eventually have to concede to a more compromising position after reaching an agreement with John's son, King Henry III of England. Alexander III After Alexander II died, the throne would pass to his seven-year-old son, who would rule as Alexander III, and would be very quickly married to King Henry III's daughter, Margaret. Neither Alexander or Margaret were even teenagers when the wedding took place. Henry believed that he could dominate Scotland as a result of the marriage, but the Scots felt differently. Nonetheless, it did bring a period of peace between the two nations. Margaret's brother Edward would succeed his father Henry as the King of England in the year 1272 and he would rule as King Edward I. Although Edward's relationship with his brother-in-law Alexander was cordial initially, the reign of King Edward I would be highly significant in the relationship between England and Scotland, as we are about to discover. As adults, Alexander and Margaret had three children called Margaret, Alexander and David. Both of them were present at the coronation of King Edward I of England in 1274, but then in the following year, Margaret of England tragically died aged just 34, leaving the three children without their mother. In terms of his kingly duties, Alexander had a son and an heir in Alexander, Prince of Scotland and he also had a spare in the youngest son, David, so his succession would not be a problem, so remarriage was not essential for the sake of the crown. However, 
an almost unbelievable sequence of events would change everything. In 1281, the eldest child of the king, Margaret, was married to King Eric II of Norway, but in the same year, the youngest son of the king, David, died at the young age of nine. Margaret fell pregnant by her new husband, who was actually a young teenager at the time. Margaret died while giving birth to a daughter, who rather confusingly would also be called Margaret. So this would now leave King Alexander III with just one remaining child, the heir to the throne, Alexander, Prince of Scotland. King Alexander had ensured that Prince Alexander was married by arranging for his marriage to Margaret of Flanders, not to be confused with all the other Margarets mentioned. However, just after his 20th birthday, Prince Alexander also died. Unbelievably, King Alexander had lost his wife and all three of his children. Now, there was no heir to the throne. So King Alexander hastily sought another wife. So he married Yolande of Dreux, with Dreux being a county in the north of France. Yolande was a woman in her 20s and a woman more than 20 years younger than Alexander. The night before Yolande's 23rd birthday, the king decided to ride to the town of Kinghorn to be with her for the celebration. However, weather conditions were treacherous and nobles warned the king about making the journey at all, let alone on his own. It was not until the following morning that the king was discovered near the shore. His body was lifeless and his neck had been broken, probably as a result of a fall from his horse. Yolande, Queen of Scotland, soon discovered that she was pregnant and her child would likely have been Alexander's successor on its birth. But the child was stillborn, further cementing the sequence of tragic events that kept coming one after another. Succession Crisis Meanwhile, King Edward I of England must have been concerned for his own political sway with Scotland after Alexander III chose to remarry a French noblewoman, having lived through the deaths of his sister and his niece and two nephews. The subject of succession was now in question and Edward would have a very keen interest in this being favourable to him politically. The agreed successor would be the three-year-old daughter of King Alexander III's own daughter Margaret of Scotland by her husband King Eric II of Norway. This little girl was known as Margaret, Maid of Norway. It appears that when King Edward I of England suggested a marriage alliance between the infant Margaret and his infant son, Edward of Carnarvon, that the Scottish nobility saw this as a positive thing for their nation, something that would help to maintain a healthy relationship between the two nations. Margaret remained in Norway during her youngest years until she was seven years old 
when she would be transported across the sea to assume her role as the Queen of Scotland. On the journey over, Margaret became ill and as the ship landed at the Orkney Islands, despite attempts to nurse her, Margaret died and her body was taken back to her father in Norway. All the plans for Scotland's throne and England's marriage alliance were all in tatters. The Scottish royal family tree had to be traced all the way back to the descendants of King David I, who died in 1153, which was 137 years previous. King David would have a grandson called David, who inherited the earldom of Huntingdon, an English earldom from his father. David, Earl of Huntingdon, had two notable daughters called Margaret and Isabel. Margaret had a daughter called de Vergila, who married John de Balliol. The house of Balliol originated from the village of Bayeul in the French region of Picardy. Their son was also called John, and we will refer to him as John Balliol. So John Balliol's grandmother was Margaret of Huntingdon and as such his great-aunt was Margaret's sister, Isabel of Huntingdon. Isabel married Robert de Bruce, the fourth lord of Annandale. The Bruce dynasty, as with the Balliol dynasty, came over the English Channel as part of the wave of nobles who benefited from the Norman conquest of England. Isabel and Robert had a son called Robert de Bruce who became the fifth Lord of Annandale so he was John Balliol's first cousin once removed. John Balliol and Robert de Bruce were among 13 candidates to be the claimants for the vacant Scottish throne. After the death of Alexander III four years earlier, regents referred to as the Guardians of Scotland were entrusted to steer the country in the right direction through decision-making. The regents were made up from a mixture of nobles, earls and bishops. The Guardians of Scotland would invite King Edward I of England, brother-in-law of King Alexander III, to arbitrate over the succession crisis. John Balliol had a decent claim to the throne, but Robert de Bruce was more than happy to go down the military route and fight for the honour. The Guardians were very anxious for Edward's arbitration, but Edward would see an opportunity to demand that Scotland declared England as its overlord, otherwise he would refuse to arbitrate. Scotland refused on the basis that such a thing could only be declared by their monarch, something they didn't have. The problem is that Scotland was heading towards a civil war, so the Guardians eventually felt that a submission of the kingdom to Edward was better than a civil war, so Edward got his way. John Balliol Edward created a council of auditors who would select John Balliol to be the next king and he would be coronated as King John I of Scotland. 
Despite Edward's claims to now be the official overlord of Scotland, there were many in Scotland who were not happy to recognise Edward as such. Edward sought an opportunity to befriend some of the Scottish nobles in a bid to gather power and put them at odds with each other, enhancing the vulnerability of the nation and allowing Edward the opportunity to better exploit it. Edward would also be interested in treating Scotland as a feudal state, with expectations of tribute to go towards England's wars with France. What Edward had done was to push the Scots too far, and nobles would rally up somewhat undermining King John in the light of his ineffectiveness. They pushed John to strike up an alliance with the French that is now known as the Old Alliance, and Edward was furious. Conflict broke out, and this is cited as being the beginning of the First War of Scottish Independence. This is a retrospective name for the ongoing conflict. Initially, it was England who signalled their intent to go to war with Scotland. The Scots attempted to attack the English city of Carlisle before the English could invade, but this was too big a task for the Scots to accomplish. Edward sent an army to the town of Berwick and slaughtered thousands of the population, sending a cold message to Scotland. King John officially renounced his homage to Edward and the tension between the two countries had soared off the scale. Edward then decided that he should press on, so after occupying Berwick and replenishing his stocks, he pressed on northwards into Lothian and Dunbar Castle. The English defeated the Scots at Dunbar Castle and this led to the collapse of Lothian as the English moved into the Scottish lowlands. King John surrendered to the English and abandoned the old alliance with France. King Edward had John publicly stripped of his royal vestments and made him abdicate his throne. King Edward then took John and his son Edward Balliol and held them captive and he also took the Stone of Destiny from the town of Schoon where there was a monastery and a royal palace. The Stone of Destiny was used ceremonially by the Scottish on which to coronate their monarchs. Edward would take the stone to Westminster Abbey close to the city of London where it was fitted under the seat of a chair. Edward left Scotland with no monarch. But it wouldn't take long before a desire for rebellion began to surface in Scotland. A man called William Hesselrig was the sheriff of Lanark, a Scottish town, and he was operating on behalf of the English. Many uprisings were taking place around Scotland, but the uprising at Lanark in 1297 was significant. The sheriff, Hesselrig, was killed during the rebellion and the man who was leading it was a man called William Wallace. William Wallace Very little is known about William Wallace's background but he has since become embedded in Scottish folklore for his actions during 
the First War of Scottish Independence. It is suggested that he comes from a low-ranked noble family, and this could have added to Wallace's comparatively ruthless attitude towards the English, as others had potentially more to lose and may have thought twice about upsetting the English. Whatever the reason, William Wallace was fully committed to the Scottish cause of battling back against English suppression. The Scottish had mainly been pushed back north of the Forth River. One of the most important crossings of the river was at Stirling Bridge. Wallace joined another noble called Andrew Murray and they travelled with their troops to the crossing in Stirling. On the south side were the English, who outnumbered the Scottish and were led by John de Warren, the 6th Earl of Surrey, and Hugh de Cressingham. The Scottish allowed the English to start crossing the river before they descended with great fury to attack the English vanguard. The bridge was so narrow that the remainder of the English army were helpless to help their vanguard and so the Scottish won control of the crossing. John de Warren ordered a retreat, and Wallace and Murray had achieved a famous victory at this, the Battle of Stirling Bridge. Edward was not able to deploy all of his resources to the suppression of the Scots, as he had higher priorities in his war with France, but when news spread of this William Wallace scoring victories against English troops in Scotland, Edward had managed to strike a truce with the French, and so he could come back to Great Britain and deal with Wallace in person. By this time Wallace had boldly ventured with his army into Northumbria and Cumberland, but simply for raiding as opposed to conquest. Edward decided to deal with the issue personally and he advanced into the lowlands while Wallace and the Scots were in the highlands across the River Forth. Both sides were attempting to anticipate each other's next move while maintaining a good number of troops. The two armies finally met at Falkirk. Initially, the Scottish organisation of infantry into phalanx-style formations called Shiltrons proved impenetrable for the English cavalry, but as soon as Edward deployed his bowmen, the lack of armour worn by the Scottish infantry became their weakness, and those Scots who were not killed on the battlefield scattered. The English were turning the tables. William Wallace was among those who escaped, but he was now defeated. Wallace had been a guardian of Scotland since his famous victory at Stirling Bridge, but now he relinquished the role and fled to France. In his place, John Cumming III of Badenoch and Robert de Bruce, grandson of Robert de Bruce, 5th Lord of Annandale, both became the guardians of Scotland. Little is known about Wallace's specific activity overseas, but it is likely that he went to seek the help of the King of France, Philip IV. Whatever did happen, the French encountered some military issues with the Flemish in the earliest years of the 14th century, and then they would reach peaceful terms with the English, which meant that the English could concentrate more resources on their ongoing aggressions with the Scots. 
John Cumming had certainly been heavily involved in Scotland's defence during Wallace's absence, but in 1304, Wallace was back. During this year, it became clear that Edward was planning the most meaningful invasion of Scotland so far, and it was also clear that Scotland's limited resources were always going to struggle against a forceful English invasion, so John Cumming looked to sue for peace. Edward entered peace talks with Cumming, and one of Edward's main stipulations was that William Wallace should be captured and handed over to Edward. Although there is no evidence that Cumming actively looked to betray William Wallace, it became clear that others might be happy to do so, if it won them favour with King Edward of England. It would be an opportunistic Scottish nobleman called John de Monteith who would capture and hand William Wallace over to the English. Wallace was taken to London to stand trial for treasonous acts, for which Wallace is reported to have claimed that it was not possible to be treasonous as he did not recognise Edward as his lord. Wallace was dragged naked through the streets of London by a horse to his place of execution, where he was hanged to near death before having his genitals and his entrails removed and burned in front of him. He was then beheaded and carved into four pieces, an act called quartering. His head was displayed in London, while his quarters were taken to four northern towns where they would be displayed as a warning to anyone considering a similar defiance of the English. Scotland was in trouble again. It is not completely clear what happened in the fateful meeting between John Cumming and Robert the Bruce in 1306. It may have been that Robert the Bruce had clear ambitions of becoming the Scottish King, a post not actively filled since the abdication of John Balliol a decade earlier. It appears that during a meeting between John Cumming and Robert the Bruce, Robert either struck or stabbed Cumming. Cumming died having been murdered and Robert went on to be crowned the King of Scots just six weeks later. Robert the Bruce Despite being king, Robert was not coronated on the Stone of Schoon due to it now being in Westminster Abbey near London. He was the first Scottish king known to not be coronated on the Stone. Robert had not only upset Edward by killing John Cumming, but also those loyal to John Cumming. Edward would name Aymer de Valence, Earl of Pembroke, as the Special Lieutenant of Scotland, in the face of the coronation. Pembroke moved quickly to attack the forces of Robert the Bruce while they bivouacked, preparing for the battle at Methven, deep into Scotland, close to the Palace of Schoon and the River Tay. What we mean by being bivouacked is that they were temporarily camped overnight, believing that Pembroke would engage on the following morning. A bivouac is such an overnight camp. Robert's forces were slaughtered and Robert himself was lucky to escape and although he was regarded by the Scots as their new king, he was now a king in hiding. 
Robert did not accept English occupation despite being clearly overpowered in his own kingdom by the English. Robert would be haunted by the Battle of Methven, where in the aftermath Robert's wife and sisters had been captured and his brothers and some of his closest noble comrades were executed. Robert would always be plotting and scheming ways to try to alter the balance of power by guerrilla tactics and the English were always trying to hunt Robert down in the Scottish wilderness. Smaller battles would take place in 1307. Robert actually scored a victory against a naive English army led by Aymer de Valence, the Earl of Pembroke, Edward's personally appointed special lieutenant in Scotland. At the Battle of Glentrul in the west of the country, where Robert could pull on the loyalty of some remote clans, he used cunning to defeat the English by rolling large boulders down the undulating Scottish landscape towards the unsuspecting English cavalry. When Pembroke's English army attempted to traverse a bog a bit further north but in the west of Scotland again, the front of their procession was met by an aggressive Scottish onslaught at the Battle of Loudon Hill, which sent the English back through the narrow pathway in the bog, running cumbersomely for their lives. The failure to capture Robert the Bruce led King Edward to decide to travel north again to deal with the problem himself. Upon reaching a burr in the far west of Hadrian's Wall, it became clear that Edward was gravely ill with dysentery and when his carers lifted his body to feed him on the morning of the 7th of July 1307, Edward died in their arms at the age of 68. The arch-nemesis of Scotland, King Edward I of England, had now passed. Edward was the man who captured King John Balliol, and he was the man who had William Wallace hanged, drawn and quartered, the most humiliating form of execution saved for the most influential of England's medieval enemies. The question would be what would Edward's death mean for the continuing conflict between the Scots and the English. The deceased king was succeeded by his son who ruled England as King Edward II. The new king did not have the same decisive nature as his father and also he did not invest as readily in the garrisons based in Scotland. Robert the Bruce certainly did have the same decisiveness as Edward's father and he would be ready to take full advantage of the new circumstances that would give him and his followers the ability to take the upper hand against the English garrisons. Robert would successfully begin to push the English out of Scotland and take back fortifications that had been held by the English. Robert the Bruce also had to contend with civil rebellion in the wake of his murder of John Cumming. The Cummings would do everything they could to prevent the success of Robert. Robert needed to deal with the problem and so he defeated Clan Cumming at the Battle of Inverurie in 1308 before devastatingly harrying all of their lands in the area of Buchan in the northeast, laying it to waste. So Robert the Bruce had successfully put down the rebellion of the once powerful Cummings. 
Uniting the clans in Scotland was a difficult task to undertake due to the complex intertwining of relationships between them and the fact that many tribes could hide with ease in the corners of northern Great Britain and its outlying islands. Robert needed to do as much as possible to ensure that the rival clans were either subdued or persuaded to be allies. The clan MacDougall had been loyal to the clan Cummins but Robert needed to ensure that they suffered the same fate as the Cummins, so they too were defeated in battle and their lands harried. Robert also needed to appeal to the Balliol family for their loyalty, even though their king, John Balliol, had long since been deposed and after being captive in London, was now living out his final years in France, completely detached from events across the water. Robert indeed wanted to agree a peace treaty with the English, but the English refused, so Robert made it his business to reclaim all the castles in Scotland occupied by the English and was highly successful in this venture. Then came Stirling Castle, one of the very last major strongholds of the English. When Robert made the demand of the English garrison surrender, this was too much for the English. King Edward II of England now had no option but to address this situation or lose all of his influence over any Scottish lands or buildings and lose face as the King of England. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast on the First War of Scottish Independence. Now, if you like the podcast and you want to support the podcast, you may be pleased to know that you can. If you go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, click on the Patreon link, you can sign up to make a monthly contribution to the podcast. You can uh, qualify for rewards and you'll be exclusively known as... Uh, a member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. Um, And uh, let's uh, continue this story of the First War of Scottish Independence next week by focusing on the Battle of Bannockburn, the climax of when Robert the Bruce met Edward II of England on the battlefield. The Ancient World Cup. For those of you who don't know, the History of the World podcast uh, present... The Ancient World Cup, you can go and look at the brackets and the progress at the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website. Uh, Just click on the Ancient World Cup link and it will tell you the entire story of the Ancient World Cup. We originally started with 64 teams and by process of voting and elimination, we're boiling it down now to the quarter finalists. That's what we're in the process of doing. So we're still in the round of 16 And uh, this week, uh, Just Gone, was uh, match number seven. Uh, History of the World podcast listeners, hot welders as we like to call you, have been voting on the Facebook page, on the unofficial Facebook fan page. Um, uh, We've been voting on Twitter and on Instagram uh, to find out who's going to progress to the quarterfinals out of the Mycenaeans and the Athenians, two Greek cultures, although not simultaneous. The Mycenaeans, of course, were uh, were one of the first societies that we recognise of, of mainland Greece. And um, when they disappeared in the aftermath, when Greece started to regrow, 
uh, we had the Poles, including Athens, who came to the forefront of Greek culture. And uh, this is really the start of classical Greece. So the Athenians were really at the, at the, at the front of that uh, movement. So the Mycenaeans versus the Athenians, uh, we've counted up the votes. There were 57 votes from uh, all of you. So thank you very much for those of you who voted. And progressing through to the quarterfinals with 62% of the vote, uh, are the Athenians. So the Athenians progress at the expense of the Mycenaeans. And uh, this week coming up, we'll find out who the Athenians will be playing in the quarterfinals. This week's match is the final match of the round of 16, and it will be between the Achaemenid Persians and the Assyrians. So once again, similar areas of the world but um, different timelines, different uh, periods of history. So the Achaemenid Persians, um, very much um, known for their first major uh, monarch, uh, King Cyrus the Great, who expanded Achaemenid Persia, really created the first serious Persian empire of which there's been so many, um, so many inheritors of that land. And... Um, King Cyrus the Great is also a, a biblical character, um, very celebrated for the emancipation of the Babylonians. Um, the Achaemenid Persians also um, really uh, got embroiled in European politics as well. Such was their expansion that they ended up in some bitter wars with the Greeks um, over um, in the Mediterranean lands. Um, so really a, a great... Uh, history for the Achaemenids and once again another powerhouse the Assyrians many many centuries of um, amazing uh, achievements by the Assyrians they they really um, were one of the forefrontal um, leaders world leaders in ironmongery and uh, at their peak when the Neo-Assyrians were um, were sort of dominant in the Middle East. They actually uh, expanded and, and conquered Egypt briefly. So uh, at the time, they were the biggest empire that the world had ever seen. So it's a couple of real powerhouses this week, the Achaemenid Persians versus the Assyrians. Uh, from tomorrow, Monday, you'll be able to vote on the Facebook uh, page, the unofficial Facebook fan group, on Instagram and on Twitter. So just look out for those opportunities to vote and get involved. Tell me who you want to be in the quarterfinal. Listener messages and reviews. Now, I was going to send some uh, some gifts out to some of the History of the World podcast Illuminati members this week, but then there was a cyber attack, which uh, me meant that I couldn't send any international parcels. So that's put that back by a few days. Until that backlog has been cleared, then I can send some of the gifts out. So, um, yeah, it's an ongoing thing, this sending the gifts out. So if you've qualified for a gift... Believe me, it's on its way. And if you believe that you should have received a gift and you haven't, then do by all means get in touch. It might just be a mistake or it could have got lost in the post even. Let's hope that's not the case. But um, yes, let me know. If you want to uh, get some History of the World podcast gifts, it's very simple. You just sign up to be a History of the World podcast Illuminati member. Click on the Patreon link 
and uh, sign up to make a monthly contribution. When you do that, you become a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and there is information there about the gifts that you can acquire. You can even commission a, a special episode on the subject of your choice and we've got maybe three or four episodes that have been requested which we're probably going to target to do at the end of the European series. So we haven't got much longer to go maybe in the European series of the Medieval uh, Volume 4. Maybe about ten more episodes at a guess, uh, without it, without looking too particularly. But we we've, we've got uh, a lot to get through. Next week's the Battle of Bannockburn, as you know. Um, but then also we'll be moving on from uh, the British Isles after that and uh, taking in some of the more um, the more later medieval uh, battles in Central Europe. So. Um, we have had a couple, I'll go through a couple of reviews actually that we've received from 10 Will from the United States of America's put excellent podcast for my commute. I'm curious but relatively uneducated about paleoanthropology. Chris continues to capture my attention while on the road for two hours each day. Most of all, I appreciate the effort he puts into the work so the rest of us can enjoy. Thank you very much, 10 Will. And then uh, LYJSOL has put wonderful, I absolutely, po- uh, I absolutely love this podcast, thank you so much for doing this, well, thank you so much for the reviews as well, so um, one good turn deserves another I suppose, so thank you very much if you're enjoying the podcast, these five star reviews really uh, do help out, they really do, so thank you so much for posting them. Um, I'm also grateful for people who write into the podcast, so i like to read out your messages. Um Colton Bellman has written in and put Colton from Kitchener here. Uh, you don't need to read this in the podcast. Well, a bit late now because I'm doing it. Um, but in your most recent episode, you read a comment from a Colton in Niagara who had a shout out to me because of the same name. I had a really good chuckle at that. I really like how you continue to read listener comments and reviews at the end of each episode. I know some people might skip something like that, but I really enjoy hearing from various people around the world who listen, and I'm sure you love it too. I I don't know how many you might get on a weekly basis, so I don't know if you ever have to pick and choose. Anyway, I'm still listening, still loving the podcast. Keep it up. Thank you, Colton. Um, And I wonder if uh, Colton from Niagara will respond to that. So we'll find out next week, I suppose. But um, thank you so much. Yes, um, a lot of people do switch off at this point of the show. I can see that from the from the reports of the podcast. They they often plot the the listener numbers and the retention through the episodes uh, at anchor. So I'm able to monitor that. And yes, a lot of people switch off after the main uh, the main bulk of the podcast, which I suppose is is fair enough. If you're really into the story, you probably don't want to be listening to. Um, all of this chit chat at the end of the episode but for me I certainly feel like I'm giving something back to you the people who've supported the podcast this podcast wouldn't be where it is now without your support to be quite frank about it so um, so I you know I feel you deserve to have your um, your messages read out Colton so thank you so much for writing in again Heather Dawn Jackson 
has written in and saying, I am so glad that I found this podcast. I had been listening to American History Tellers and finally caught up to present with that podcast. I knew what I wanted to listen to next was world history. It took me a couple of days to find History of the World podcast, as most podcasts focus on one era or subject, and I really wanted a comprehensive and chronological history, which is exactly your format. I've listened to Volume 1 in a matter of five days. And I'm looking forward to continuing. Your voice makes it easy on the ears onto volume two. I'm always astonished by people, how they're able to sort of listen and concentrate for multiple episodes in a row. It's something I find particularly difficult. I think there's probably a couple of podcasts um, that I've listened to that I've been able to binge listen to. And I suppose it's because of the relaxed format. I think that my format is quite intense. It's quite information intense. So to to listen to that without distraction is, is really difficult. But um, the two podcasts that I enjoyed was um, Presidential and uh, Rex Factor, which both tackle like the chronological history of the presidents of the United States of America and uh, the kings and queens of England and Scotland, uh, respectively, for both of those publications. Um, so, yes, um, uh, thank you, Heather, and I'm really glad you're enjoying it. Um, I certainly was looking for something similar myself, which is why I started creating the podcast now almost five years ago. Um, Cora... Uh, Cora Sperry has written in from McCoy, Colorado in the United States saying, Hi Chris, first, thank you so much for creating such a wonderful podcast. I've been binging your podcast all winter. I'm currently on Volume 3, Episode 69 and I'm really enjoying the recap of Chinese and Indian history. I was a religious studies major in college and focused on Hinduism and Buddhism as much as I could for for a bachelor's degree, but it's been a long time so I've forgotten a lot of the history I learned all those years ago. Also, thank you so much for starting with prehistoric topics. There seems to be a real lack of podcasts covering the hominids and how we evolved. My main reason for writing is actually to share a little tidbit of plant-related trivia I've been wanting to send you ever since the episode on Troy. I'm a landscaper and I'm excited to share this with someone who might also find it interesting as my garden crews usually aren't as enthusiastic about cool plant trivia as I am. The plant genius Achillea, otherwise known as the Yarrows, is named after Achilles because it is said that he treated his soldiers' wounds with these plants, some of which have blood clotting properties. I just love it when tidbits of history pop up in my everyday world in fun ways and I'm always happy to think of this fact when I'm ordering or planting our native yarrow. Thank you again for all your hard work from Cora. Thanks, Cora. Um, I never knew that. Um, Fantastic. And I'm sure there's a lot of uh, hot world uh, listeners, hot welders, who um, maybe didn't know that also and are quite, um, quite interested to hear that as well. So thank you so much for taking the time to write in and tell us about that. Certainly something I didn't know, but um, definitely now whenever I'm um, whenever I chance across that, I now know. So thank you, Cora. Thank you very much. Uh, that's it for this week. Thank you to everyone who wrote in and for all of your reviews and uh, for all of you uh, who have uh, signed up to make monthly contributions. We've got three new uh, History of the World podcast Illuminati members this week to welcome in Cora Sperry, who we've just heard from, Carsten Hills, 
and Jackie Nadali. So thank you to all of you for um, your contributions to the podcast. It really helps, it, honestly. The, the Library of the History of the World podcasters uh, multiplied immensely thanks to all of your kind contributions. And in turn, it makes the quality of the podcast so much better. So you've got yourself to thank for that. Um, and uh, really do appreciate all of your support. Next week will be a monster. The Battle of Bannockburn will be uh, we'll be delving into the heroics of Robert the Bruce and uh, this this ongoing struggle between England and Scotland um, that we have left behind in this week's episode. So don't forget to tune in next week. And until then, please be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.